Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule two or three or four or five dollars a month. Will cost you almost nothing, will be a tremendous help to me. Uh, in paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card. And uh, that would also be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now for this week's episode. My guest today on Uncommentary is Dr. Hidetaka Hirota, Associate Professor in the Department of English Studies at Sophia University in Tokyo, Japan, where he teaches North American Studies and Migration Studies. He earned his Ph.D. from Boston College, where his doctoral dissertation won the university's Best Humanities Dissertation Award. It also won the Cromwell Dissertation Prize. He's an historian of the United States with particular interests in immigration, race, and ethnicity, Law and Policy, Labor, and Transnational International History. He's the author of the award-winning Expelling the Poor, Atlantic Seaboard States, and the 19th Century Origins of Immigration Policy, published in 2017 by Oxford University Press. Hirota frequently contributes editorials on immigration policy and nativism to major newspapers, such as the Washington Post and the Irish Times, and has been interviewed on these topics by various venues, including C-SPAN, The Atlantic, and the Center for American Progress. Dr. Hidetaka Hirota, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, we are at a 14-hour time difference right now, which I didn't, honestly, I didn't even know that was a thing. I did not know that you could get 14 hours apart from each other and still be on the planet. Uh, you're in Tokyo, yeah. Japan, and it's night there. It's like 9 p.m. at night or something like that. Right, right. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, I'm used to doing this, so um, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar uh, with your book or with your uh, your public uh, appearances, why don't you give us a little uh, information on who you are? Sure. Um, I am a historian um, of the United States, and you know I study uh, U.S. immigration history. Um, I got my, you know, uh, I did my um, professional education in the United States. I got my PhD in history at Boston College. And after that, um, I researched and taught at uh, Columbia University and uh, the City University of New York City College. And um, especially, you know, I, I specialize in the history of American immigration policy and um, nativism, which is uh, under immigrant sentiment. And um, my first book, um, you know, maybe um, I have time to talk about that. Um, my first book examines the, uh, the origins of American immigration policy, especially deportation policy. And beyond that, uh, um, I'm generally interested in, you know, the history of immigration control, immigration restriction, and um, anti-immigrant uh, racism and uh, cultural prejudice, uh, things like that. Um, and 
lastly, uh, you know, so after uh, uh, living in U.S. for uh, about 15 years, um, last year I returned to Japan where I was born and grew up. Um, and currently I am um, uh, associate professor at uh, Sophia University in Tokyo. Um, now, Sophia in Greek means love, I think, right? Is it the same there? Well, yeah, well, you know, it's a, it is a, a Jesuit college. Oh, okay, um, awesome. Very cool. So yeah, yeah. That's so interestingly, you know, um, you know, I got my graduate education at uh, Boston College, and I ended up getting a job at uh, another you know, Jesuit institution. <laughs> <laughs> the Catholics are going to get you yet. Right. Uh, okay, so before we get into your book, which is called "Expelling the Poor: Atlantic Seaboard States and the Nineteenth Century Origins of American Immigration Policy." Um, how did you become interested in uh, immigration policy in the U.S.? Uh, you grew up in Japan. Did you grow up in Tokyo? Uh, yes, and um, I, I I graduated from from um, Sofia actually in Tokyo. Okay. Um, and um, so when I was an undergrad student there, um, I mean here in Tokyo, um, uh, um, you know I, I came to be interested in American history and American studies in, in general, and especially. Um, I became interested in the issues of race and um, ethnicity, and um, you know so many things about you know anti-black uh, racism and uh, nativism, you know, mm -hmm. or you know kind of uh, social cultural uh, division within the uh, white population. Um, you know, these kind of things um, uh, appeared really intellectually fascinating to me. So I decided to study U.S. history and. Um, in America, you know, at the uh, American graduate institutions. Yeah. And yeah, so that's how I kind of um, enter this field. Okay. Very cool. Uh, and your book is, um, is an award winner. Your dissertation actually was an award winner, uh, which is pretty yeah. impressive. Um, if I do say so myself, uh, but talk about your book a little bit. What, what are you covering in the book? It's called expelling the poor. So we can assume that it has something to do with the poverty level of people who had immigrated or were trying to immigrate and that this affected um, immigration policy far, far pa into our uh, American past. So uh, get us get us started. Sure. Um, so the book examines the um, the origins of immigration restriction in the United States, especially deportation policy, and um, it really uh, revises you know um, our understanding of of this subject. Uh, you know, traditionally. Historians, you know, uh, felt that uh, immigration to the United States uh, was free from regulation uh, for a long time until the federal government um, started regulating, restricting uh, Chinese immigration in the uh, in the late nineteenth century. Okay, and um, my book challenges this kind of um, uh, assumption or so-called open borders myth mm -hmm. by demonstrating that um, immigration control to the U.S. was never ever free from regulation, uh, even before the introduction of Chinese, federal Chinese exclusion. Mm -hmm. And the book uh, reveals how um, 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 Irish migration, especially the uh, the migration of the Irish poor, um, was regulated um, uh, on the East Coast at the state level mm -hmm. in places like Massachusetts and New York. And um, eventually, uh, these state-level policies that were targeted um, against the Irish poor um, uh, laid the foundations for uh, federal immigration laws. So, um, so, so, so 
in this sense, you know, the, the book kind of demonstrates um, the deeper, you know, long, you know, um, origins of um, immigration control in, in America. How long had, some, how long had some of these uh, state policies been in effect uh, before the federal policies came into effect? Um, how the state policies affect the federal policy? No, how long, how long had the state policies been in place? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, so... Um, it's, it's it's a little difficult to measure the exact uh, length, but here's a context. Um, um, the original kind of legal framework were laid out actually uh, during the colonial period. Um, you know, the British settlers, um, you know, back in the colonial time, uh, they introduced uh, England's per laws, okay. uh, which you know had provisions for expulsion. Uh, you know, of the uh, of the um, transient beggars. And these parole laws um, um, became state parole laws, parole laws um, after the, the you know Amer- American independence, and then um, eventually uh, the the state parole laws, including uh, the the deportation provisions, developed into um, immigration policies, immigration laws uh, uh, in the mid nineteenth century. So um, you know it's been it, it had been in America for a long time, but I would say that. Um, um, as state immigration laws, uh, these systems began to operate um, over the course of the over the uh, during the first half of the nineteenth century. Okay. So um, <clears throat> there never was a. Um, I, I know the term "open borders" is used a lot, uh, and and most people don't bother to define it when they use it. But I think most people have in mind when they say "open borders" that there's. There's no restrictions. There's no accounting. There's no record keeping. You know, there's no visas. People just go back and forth as they please uh, without ever having to go through passport control or something like that. And your your thesis is that that idea of open borders has either never existed in the United States or it was very quickly done away with as states began to put regulations in place to keep out uh, poverty ridden Irish immigrants. Is that is that kind of accurate? Well, yeah. Um, so my my point is that um, it's wrong to assume that uh, there was no law to regulate immigration um, before the introduction of federal policies. Gotcha. Um, there were laws, mm-hmm. uh, especially the st- at the state level. There were state laws um, that provided for the deportation and exclusion of um, impoverished. Foreigners, especially European um, paupers from Ireland, um, and people were deported and excluded under these policies. Um, but at the same time, I am not necessarily saying that uh, these laws were always super strict. You know, I mean, enforced in super strict ways, right? right? right okay. Laws, um, um, but nevertheless, um, just going back to my original point, uh, I think. Um, Historically, it's accurate to say that uh, the United States, uh, I mean, in the United States, there there were laws to regulate uh, immigration. Okay, um, you've said um, in your book that uh, that nativists 
for instance, in New York and Massachusetts, um, were involved in, in developing these laws or policies. And I'm kind of using some of these terms interchangeably, and I realize there may be specific uses, but I'm not smart enough to know what they are. Um, but but you, you have referred to nativists uh, who wanted to keep these folks out. Can you define uh, what you mean when you say a nativist and how that would have looked uh, in, for instance, New York or Massachusetts, uh, how they responded and what they attempted to do? Right. Um, natives, natives, uh, in, in my case, um, refer the, the term nativist, uh, refers to actually, I, uh, a wide range of people. Um, nativists, uh, certainly included, um, anti-immigrant politicians. Um, but also, um, nativists included the, um, uh, normal citizens, you know, who, who opposed, um, uh, immigration, especially the the Irish immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I, you know, I, I didn't really provide a specific definition um, of the term, uh, precisely, you know, because the term really covers diverse people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people generally uh, um, opposing Irish immigration or advocating uh, the strict implementation of safe deportation laws. But um, um, one one thing that um, I would like to kind of point out, um, especially in the case of Massachusetts, is that um, a lot of nativists were uh, Whigs and Republicans at the time. And uh, many of them, especially in the case of Massachusetts, uh, were anti-slavery activists. I mean, uh, uh, anti-slavery politicians were activists. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them were at the same time nativists. Wow. Um, so... Massachusetts really, um, you know, provides an interesting, you know, kind of, you know, contrast, you know, the same people, um, uh, opposed, um, uh, the implementation of, for example, uh, federal fugitive slave law or, you know, the people, uh, uh, advocating the protection of, um, you know, black civil liberty at the same time kind of pursued, um, strict immigration laws. Was it, um, so I'm, I'm going to assume here that most of these Irish folks that were trying to come over were also white uh, and that most of the nativists who were um, active as anti-slavery advocates or anti-slavery politicians were also uh, majority white. Um, so what was the what was the characteristic if they weren't uh, if they weren't as racially biased as we might have thought? Uh, but they were against uh, these white immigrants coming in. Was it simply the poverty issue, or did they just not like Irish people for red hair or something? Um, that is a very important point. Um, Native sentiment uh, at the time uh, involved multiple multiple components. Um, poverty was big one, certainly, especially in, you know in the history of uh, immigration policy here. Uh, but, but at the same time, um, from from broader perspective, I mean, you know, um, uh, when it comes to the issues of natives in gen- general, um, nativists uh, were uncomfortable with so many aspects of the Irish, not just the um, poverty. And the uh, major one is obviously religion. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Bostonians or Massachusetts nativists, or even uh, in New York, um, nativists were largely Protestant. Okay. And many of them were of Anglo descent. You know, remember, you know, Massachusetts is a kind of traditionally you know, kind of Puritan state, right? Yes. I mean, it has this very strong Puritan um, 
um, Protestant cultural background. Um, so, so because of this background, nativists um, had very strong prejudice against the, uh, the Catholics mm. and then as well as people, uh, I mean, the Celtic people, the Irish people. Yeah. So um, the religion and um, ethnic prejudice, re- religious prejudice and ethnic prejudice were uh, equally kind of involved uh, in, in our sentiment. Well, we were still dealing with uh, kind of anti-Catholic sentiment all the way up until the time that John F. Kennedy ran for office. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, anti-Catholicism um, was, you know, it, it was a long time. It, it is a it, it, it was a very it, it, Remained a major component, uh, ingredient of uh, nativism in, in, in America. Definitely, that's really interesting. I'm talking to Dr. Hidetaka Hirota about his book, um, "Expelling the Poor: Atlantic Seaboard States and the 19th Century Origins of American Immigration Policy," and about immigration policy in general. And we'll be right back after this. I mentioned recently the series from Erdman's Publishing, "The Library of Religious Biography." The series is edited by Mark Noel, Heath Carter, and Catherine Jen alum. Um, it, it's about 30 books now of various biographies. They sent me two, uh, Damning Words, The Life and Religious Times of H.L. Mencken by D.G. Hart, uh, and A Christian and a Democrat, A Religious Biography of Franklin D. Roosevelt by John F. Wolverton and James D. Bratt, forward by James Comey. Um, other books in the series include A Life of Alexander Campbell, uh, the Miracle Lady on Catherine Kuhlman, uh, George Whitfield, The Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, uh, The First Amer- uh, American Evangelical, a bio of uh, Cotton Mather. Um, I encourage you to look it up. Just Google Urban's uh, and uh, Religious Biography series, and you'll be able to get to it. These are, these are great books, uh, most of them hardback, if not all of them right now. Uh, and I encourage you to check it out. This is the William B. Urban's series, uh, The Library of Religious Biography. Uh, it's available on Amazon too, but if you want to see all the ones in order, uh, go to Urban's and check them out there and you might find something that you like. Um, so we're talking, we've talked a little bit about the, the poverty aspect, uh, which is interesting to me because I hear that even today. Um, we can't afford is what I hear a lot. We can't afford to have all these immigrants come in from all these different poor countries or whatever. And even what, two months ago, I guess, Someone with the federal government uh, kind of modified the Ellis Island plaque to say people who could stand on their own two feet. Uh, so it sounds kind of like that the idea of anyone who comes to America should automatically be able to contribute uh, and not um, need help is is still here, but it's got an ancient history in this country. Is that right? Um. Yes, uh, definitely, you know, anti-poverty sentiment um, has been um, an integral part of American nativism. You know, um, um, there's always an expectation that um, foreigners here, I mean, in the United States uh, should be self-sufficient. You know, they should be able to earn their own bread, uh, contribute to society and, you know, make, you know, become uh, good assets uh, mm-hmm. for the country, and that 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 served as rationale for um, you know certain kinds of immigration control, and definitely you know 
uh, in the case you just met, uh, mentioned, you know, uh, uh, today, you know, the, the Department of Homeland Security uh, is pursuing a new policy, new public charge policy, um, uh, with the rationality that you know that has been the policy of the United States. Now, I think there's a, a tremendous, tremendous danger uh, 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 with that logic. That is, you know, the United States uh, always had this uh, anti-poverty uh, policy, and you know, it's and 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 then I I think the most dangerous premise. Or the kind of you know wrong assumption is that the policy is based on uh, some fairness, so some 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 level of fairness. You know, it's a strictly economic policy. Um, it, it it was implemented, uh, you know, executed against all foreigners uh, solely based on the basis of economics. Mm. Now that's wrong. Um, what I'm trying to say here is that. Um, the economic policy, this is pauper policy, public charge policy is always uh, used with uh, racial ethnic prejudice. In other words, uh, you know, one group or, you know, some groups were more likely to be determined as paupers, public charges than other groups. So back in the 19th century, for example, um, the uh, the Irish uh, became the you know the major targets of this uh, pauper deportation policy. Even though um, there were some Germans and you know French uh, who were equally poor, but you know state officials uh, clearly you know had uh, a stronger Irish anti-Irish prejudice, mm. and and as a result, you know the laws were implemented uh, more harshly against the Irish than other groups, right? Um, so the uh, you know the economic policy is always uh, kind of used, um, you know, uh, with some racial or ethnic profiling, mm-hmm. and, and, and in this case, oh, let me just give you one more example here. Sure. Um, during the um, Great Depression, you know, um, of the uh, 1930s, um, European immigrants and Mexicans uh, were poor, impoverished, and they lost employment alike. But then um, European immigrants were um, allowed to receive some public benefits, like uh, some, some welfare, um, with, with the assumption that, um, you know, their poverty was just, a, you know, uh, a, a result of unfortunate misfortune, I mean, misfortune, you mm-hmm. know, beyond people's control. So um, as member of members of U.S. society, the uh, European immigrants, you know, the poor European immigrants without job um, deserve, um, you know, social benefits. By contrast, Mexicans, you know, without jobs were considered simply burdens on society. Mm. And, um, you know, Me- Mexicans who sought public welfare or public charities um, were determined as public charges and they were deported, right? Um so you see how, you know, racial and ethnic prejudice or assumptions, you know, operated with the uh, economic policy here. So um, so that's so, so I, I think there's tremendous danger, mm-hmm. um, you know, to to let public charge policy uh, operate, you know, um, in a way that reinforces uh, racism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned in your book that um, there were practices of illegal removal, including the uh, overseas 
deportation of citizens. So um, is now I think this is at state level. So this would be prior to the Chinese Exclusion Act, I guess. Um, So is this people became poor once they got here and we decided to send them back to wherever they came from. Uh, But citizens, these are people who, however, citizenship was determined at the time had passed the test to use the nomenclature. Um, and then at some point, was it poverty that caused us to send them somewhere else? Was it crime? I mean, why were we deporting citizens and how were we doing illegal deportations? Um, that is, again, uh, that's, that's another very important point. And um, um, the most important thing that we uh, have to consider or, you know, uh, uh, we, we, we should be aware of is that um, – in the 19th century, in an antebellum period, you know, before the Civil War, um, citizenship was not necessarily the kind of, you know, the definite marker of people's rights and liberty. Okay. Um, you know, so we tend to think that, you know, citizenship is such a kind of sacred, uh, you know, marker of U.S. citizens' rights and freedom and um the the deportation of citizens um, sounds like a tremendously uh, a serious crime. Um, it, it it was illegal uh, uh, already back in the nineteenth century, but at the same time, you know, um, just in American society in general, citizenship was not necessarily a uh, 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 important marker of people's rights, mm. and and instead. Um, for example, racial status uh, mattered more mm-hmm. than legal citizenship status, uh, and, and also uh, economic conditions, um, e- economic standing, uh, or uh, ethnic um, uh, status background uh, could matter more than legal citizenship, and and especially uh, in the nineteenth century, mid nineteenth century, um, uh, um, we we know that. Um, there was a very uh, aggressive and radical uh, nativist movement um, known as the Norothing movement. And so the thing is that when the relative insignificance of citizenship and a very aggressive nativist movement came together, um, it was so easy for nativists or, you know, uh, public officers to, to, to kind of disregard, you know, the, the, the citizenship of, um, you know, the rights of undesirable citizens. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of context uh, uh, under which uh, citizen deportation happened. You know, it, it was unlawful already back in the time, and people did uh, point out the illegality of such removal. But um, um, given the relative insignificance of citizenship and the aggressiveness of nativism back then, um, um, I was not surprised, honestly, uh, by, by these incidents. Now, isn't um, isn't it true that there's always been uh, pushback against immigration? Uh, so whether you're talking about the Irish or whether you're talking about the Chinese or whether you're talking about the Poles or whether you're talking about the Vietnamese in the 1970s or whether you're talking about people from Central America now and Mexico, mm-hmm. um, hasn't there always been kind of like through the history of the United States these enormous – concerns and pushback against um, the other, to use a, a friend of mine's term, uh, people right. who are you know not American 
wanting to come in for whatever reason, whether it be asylum or some kind of other safety or they're refugees or they just want to come to work. Uh, and there's always been this bowing up of a certain uh, group of people that, no, we don't need any more people in America or, no, we don't need those kinds of people in America. Um, is, is this kind of a, is, is this an attitude of America that's on the top or is this an attitude of America that's kind of underneath and it just bubbles up every now and then? Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, nativism has been an integral part of American history. N- nativism never uh, went away. It's mm. It has been always with the United States. Now, um, it is... It is it is true that um, you know the U.S. had relatively a uh, liberal you know um, progressive Im- immigration policy, and numerically, you know, the nation received um, a huge number of immigrants compared to other states, uh, other 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 countries. So, um, so we should not you know uh, under underestimate that aspect um, mm-hmm. of, of you. You know, America's past. You know, immigrants were admitted. A large number of immigrants were admitted in, uh, to the United States. But this, obviously, this does not necessarily mean that uh, these immigrants were, you know, uh, unconditionally accepted. Right. And um, you know, they were welcomed as part, you know, as members of, you know, future uh, U.S. citizens, members of U.S. society. Uh, the fact is, you know, while while the country uh, accepted a large number of immigrants. Um, um, you know, people in America uh, expressed uh, hatred um, and, you know, um, all sorts of, you know, uh, negative feelings, racism, uh, nativism uh, against these newcomers. And um, unfortunately, that that has been the case all the time, um, you know, almost without exception. Did you have, uh, and you can decline to answer this question if you wish, but uh, you were here for 15 years. Uh, I've seen your picture. You, um, you, you look like a Japanese man. Um, yes. <laughs> did, did you experience um, any uh, racism or nativism toward you while you were here on what I assume was was student visas and work visas for the time that you were here? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I yeah. First of all, yes, I am a, a, a Japanese national, so I was in the United States as a foreigner mm-hmm. uh, from uh, a foreigner uh, of Asian descent. Um, so I was I was. I was among uh, definitely a racial uh, minority mm-hmm. all the time throughout my stay in the United States. Um, um, I was, I think, I was in a relatively protected environment because, you know, within American society, because you know, um, normally I was at, um, you know, universities, mm-hmm. and you know, pe- people kind of make fun of universities as kind of ivory towers and. Right. Um, <laughs> Right. Uh, that's, you know, that's a kind of classic uh, critique of, you know, colleges in, in America. And, and to some extent, you know, yes, you know, my social contacts were limited, you know, at universities. And 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 in this sense, um, I, I was in a relatively protected environment. But but of course, you know, um, I have, yes, experienced um, racism, ethnic cultural prejudices and and sometimes uh a little funny because it's you know I, I'm struck by how ignorant you know people are yeah, you know, yeah. about uh, Japan or Asia, um, 
so um, I was not really offended by this. I was just, I, I was feeling like, you know, like, you know, you don't know anything about the world. And, and, um, well, yeah, it is so true. Most, I mean, uh, unfortunately, a, a large section uh, of Americans don't know much about history, and they don't know our own or anybody else's, uh, and and they don't know much about uh, other countries. They've not, you know, they've not traveled outside of um, you know their region or at least the United States, and so they're not exposed, um, you know, to what other countries have to offer. The cultural differences that can be uplifting and encouraging and informative and. Uh, and even provide means by which we can objectively critique, you know, our own culture. Um, and so uh, it's it can be frustrating at times, but I'm thankful for the ones who uh, who do learn, whether it's by watching Anthony Bourdain reruns or making a new friend or uh, whatever the case might be, that they're willing to say, uh, hey, I'm you know, I want to break out and find out what some other people in some other countries are like. Uh, so that that right. part's encouraging. Um, I always hear, uh, and, and you feel free to address this in any way that you, that you think is appropriate. Uh, but one of the objections that I often hear about immigration in the United States is that other countries, and I think you kind of alluded to this, that other countries don't take in as many immigrants as the United States. Um, and it could be for some of the same reasons. So they're trying to, they're trying to protect their culture or they have a racial bias of some kind. Um, what are some countries that we could uh, kind of distinguish between them and the U.S. right now, and in, in uh, that would I don't want to say make the U.S. look good, that would, but that would give a contrast to a country that's like you know we don't we don't take any immigrants uh, or we don't want any immigrants or it's so hard to get in here you don't even want to try versus the United States that's at least tried to have a path for several decades now. Right. Um, to me. Um very important distinction between the U.S. and many other countries uh, is is not necessarily the number of foreigners you know these countries admit. Uh, uh, to me, very very important um, thing is the way the country uh, makes foreigners uh, and their children. Uh, citizens. That's I mean, point. the members of society. And in that regard, the United States still remains uh, one of the most progressive countries compared to the other countries, uh, uh, including including Japan, my my own mm. you know, country of origin. Um, Japan doesn't have uh, a birthright citizenship. Wow. You know. Uh, um, you know, being being born on Japanese soil doesn't, you know, confer you mm-hmm. uh, a citizen, Japanese citizenship. You know, your your parents have to be um, a Japanese citizens, right? Um, and and U.S. despite all these critiques and uh, threats, you know, um, from from nativist racists today, you know, the United States still has uh, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees uh, the uh, birthright citizenship and naturalized citizenship. And that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tremendously important, you know, uh, apparatus um, to 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 make foreigners and, and their uh, children, uh, you know, members of your society. And, you know, my... So, so, 
various countries are, you know, various countries uh, which we used to have uh, birthright citizenship are kind of giving up um, um, th this policy, and U.S. still retains that. Um, so that, to me, the birthright citizenship, citizenship under the Fourteenth Amendment is is um, you know enormously important, and this must be retained. Dr. Hidetaka Hirota, author of Expelling the Poor, Atlantic Seaboard States and the 19th Century Origins of American Immigration Policy, and a specialist on uh, American immigration history. Thank you for being on Uncommentary today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcaster, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash UncommentaryPod, and make a one-time gift there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria. <laughs>